We're in the book of 1 Thessalonians. I'm going to begin reading at verse 1. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians and God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers loved by God, that he has chosen you because of our gospel came to you, not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. First Thessalonians. We all want to be strong Christians, don't we? We want to be steady and resilient. And we want, as a church, to be strong and resilient, steadfast, full of the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. We all want that. But how? What's the pathway to being a strong, resilient, mature, fruitful Christian? I was thinking of you, I was thinking of our church, as I was reading 1 Thessalonians, because Thessalonians is a picture of a wonderful church, of a great church. And so I'd like to spend a few weeks looking at it. I'll be looking at this letter of Paul to the Thessalonians through three lenses, faith, hope, and love. I think of these as the vital signs of spiritual health, faith, hope, and love. And I'll define them in the weeks ahead. But really, everyone has faith. I don't mean just Christians. Every single person walks by, makes decisions in life by trusting someone or something. There's faith. Everyone believes in love. I don't know that anybody who would say, I don't want to be loving. But how do we do it? What's a wise and good way to love other people? And everybody looks to the future, so everyone has hope. They always anticipate or long for something to happen in the future. But there's something distinct about how we as followers of Christ view these three things. And so I'm going to be looking at faith, hope, and love by asking three questions repeatedly in the following weeks. And so I'll introduce the questions today. So today I have a brief introduction to the book and then the three questions. Who do I trust? How do I love? And what do I hope? So a brief introduction first, and then the three questions, who do I trust, how do I love, and what do I hope? Thessalonica, city in modern-day Greece. Paul's first trip there is described in Acts chapter 17. It was, wow, it was an adventure. I guess that's a nice way to put it. You should read it. It happened maybe around 50 AD. So let's say a decade and a half after the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Paul and his companions came to this city. They 
presented the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, that God, the creator of all humanity, not just Jews, but Jews and Gentiles, had made himself known through Christ Jesus. All his grace and mercy had been poured out upon mankind through Christ Jesus. And some believed, but many hated it. And so they started a terrific riot. And Paul and his companions actually had to escape by night to another city. So here's the question then. Paul's gone. So here's these young believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, young Christians. Will they survive? How can they survive? The city is full of idols. As you read the history and the culture of this region, many, many idols, some from Egypt, some from Greece, and they're all worshipped and adored. There's fertility cults where sexual license is actually celebrated. And there's open hostility to the gospel. This riot was just an emblem, you might say a symbol of these underlying realities. Will they survive? Paul was worried enough to send Timothy to check up on them. I mean, what's happening back there? And he was so overjoyed to hear that they were doing well. If you have your Bibles open, 1 Thessalonians 3, 6 through 8, it says, But now that Timothy has come to us from you, and has brought us good news of your faith and love, and that you always think kindly of us, longing to see us just as we also long to see you. For this reason, brethren, in all our distress and affliction, we were comforted about you through your faith. Are they surviving? And it turns out they're not just surviving, they're thriving. They're actually spreading the word of God throughout the whole region. It's really remarkable if you look back at the first chapter again, look at verse 7 and 8. You became, it says, an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. So this is what we might call the region around Greece, modern-day Greece. For the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place. And your faith toward God has gone forth so that we have no need to say anything. Isn't that amazing? What is it about these Thessalonians? Young believers. And yet, not only are they surviving, they're resilient. The news of Christ is spreading from this young church. Well, what is it? Well, here's one thing we know. Paul knows for sure that their faith is real. It's not a flash in the pan. You know, people emotionally can come to faith in Christ and then wander away very quickly. Jesus, in fact, in his parable in Matthew 12, warned us about that. But this is true faith. He says in verse 4 that he knows they are in the grip of God. Knowing, brethren, beloved of God, his choice of you. How did he know this? How did Paul know that God had chosen these people? How do you know that God has chosen you? Well, again, very quickly, let me just explain why he says this is so. Verse 3, these vital signs, which I'll go into in a moment. He says, he's heard of their work of faith, labor of love, and steadfastness of hope. These vital signs are signs of health and strength in them. And then, in verse 5, for our gospel did not come to you, for meaning this is the reason why we know God has chosen you. Our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit with full conviction. So, Paul may here be referring to the fact that he was a great preacher. 
that the word came forth in great power, but I think it's more than that, that the word of God had a powerful imprint on their lives. Whether the preaching was great or not didn't matter, but the work of the Holy Spirit was evident in their lives through the word as it was given to them. And then thirdly, verse 6, you also became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit. Their manner of life changed. It wasn't just something they sang about or talked about or thought about. The way they lived actually changed. And so it says they became imitators. They reorganized their lives. They looked at Paul and Silas and Timothy and they said, oh, this is how Christians are supposed to live. So they reorganized their worship. They reorganized their families, their marriage, their schedules. They became imitators. They say, this is the kind of life I want to live. And Paul says, I know that God has you in his grip. Really asks us then to ask ourselves, who are my examples? Who do I follow? And are those examples followers of the Lord Jesus Christ? But even more in verse 6, isn't it interesting? They did all this even in tribulation. I think it's wonderful to have peace and be able to follow Jesus without any conflict. But wow, if you're willing to obey Christ and follow him, even when it's costly, that's a sure sign of genuine faith. Just watch for it. If you're nurturing someone, if there's a young believer that you're praying for, watch for that because it's a sign of genuine faith. In fact, we'll see in chapter 4, that one of the hard choices that they had to make in Thessalonica had to do with sexuality. And I bring that up because so much of what was happening in the culture of Thessalonica reminds us of our own culture. Brothels were everywhere, historians tell us. Fertility cults made sexual gratification normal. In fact, more than normal. About a half a century, or maybe a, almost a century before one of the Roman philosophers or writers, Cicero, said that young people should experience sex fully. Sounds so modern, doesn't it? So young Christians, when they came to faith, must have been wondering, why do I have to give up all this? What's wrong with all of it? The same kinds of questions maybe that young believers or old believers are asking now. I remember a young woman who came to faith who was part of a sexual lifestyle that is not in accordance with God's plan. But she, she found the Lord Jesus Christ. And she gave her life to Christ wholly with excitement and with joy. It was, by the way, a lifestyle that's accepted in our culture as it was in Thessalonica. But it's not something that brings pleasure to God because it's not in accord with his will. And the question was, will she be able to continue? Because Following Jesus for her meant abandoning and being abandoned by all her friends. She was a very gifted athlete. It meant that she couldn't play on the sports teams because they didn't want her anymore. But she had found something that was worth more than all of that. And happily, joyfully, she followed Jesus. And isn't that a sign of genuine faith? Even in tribulation, it says they followed the word. So that's a brief introduction then to Thessalonica. So with that, let's look at these vital signs of faith, hope, and love. And the first question I want to ask is, who do I trust? Who do you trust? Who do I trust? Whose counsel do I seek 
about what to do. When I'm confused, when there's darkness all around me, how do I decide what the loving thing to do is? And when I look into the future, what do I invest my life in? What do I hope in? What return do I expect to get? So who do I trust? Who tells me what to do in all of those situations? It's not an easy question to answer. There's surveys, especially about teenagers and who they trust, and you can look those up. Parents, whatever my parents tell me to do, is that the right thing? Do I trust my friends, counselors, therapists, pastors, authors, websites? Who do I trust? Who gives me direction for my life? It's a critical question because it affects how we think. It affects how we therefore live. How we face trial and trouble and what pathway we take when we face those troubles. These Thessalonians trusted the word of God. Here's how it's put in chapter 2, verse 13. For this reason, we also constantly thank God that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not, I might say, merely as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God which also performs its work in you who believe. So that's why Paul says, I know you're in God's grip because the word of God has come to you with power. How do we know that the word of God has come to us with power? You ever ask that? I was thinking about this and this might be an interesting way for you to look at it. How does God's word affect God's people? As you look through the Bible, how do they respond to God's word? There's many metaphors word pictures of God's word. And let me just share a few of them and see if they don't help you, maybe get you started on a study of how God's people respond to God's word. So, for example, Psalm 19, verse 10 says, More to be desired are the laws of God, the word of God, than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey. So, one thing that happens when God's word has an impact on us is that it becomes sweet. It becomes something we desire. We want to read it. We want to hear it. It's a remarkable change. You see it in those who come to faith. The word of God all of a sudden becomes interesting to them. Here's a second one. The word of God, another picture is it's called a light or a lamp. Psalm 119, 105. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Don't you want that? You know, sometimes when we walk in the dark, it's scary, isn't it? Sometimes at night, I'm walking through that door in the hallway of the new building, and it's just dark. And you know, there's metal pipes, and there's work horses, and there's all kinds of sharp metal boxes that they're going to put in various places. It's scary to walk there. I don't know what I'm going to trip over. I need a light, so I turn my flashlight out on my phone, and I walk. And then it's perfectly safe. I know exactly the path on which to go. That's what God's word is like. We feel unsafe walking without God's word. Especially when there's darkness and trouble and confusion around us, when we don't know what to do, when our emotions are roiled up, we don't know which way to go. We feel uncertain, we feel fearful, unless it's the light of God's word that's guiding us. Here's yet another metaphor. This is an interesting one. Jeremiah 23, 29 says, God's word is a hammer. Isn't that an interesting metaphor? 
Sometimes God's truth, I think, has to be pounded into us. It's the same truth, the same spot, but God's word hits it over and over and over again until it finally sinks in. A few years ago, I was preaching through the book of James, and it was interesting to me how many people came up to me and complained is the wrong word, just mentioned with a little whine in their voice, why I was talking so much about speech and words. And of course, I was just following what the text said because James was really hammering us about this issue. This is important, what you do with your words and what you do with your speech. Over and over he hit it. Sometimes it was tender, gentle, little taps, and sometimes it was with all his might. He hammered those truths in. So God's word is a hammer. How do we know God's word is coming to us? Well, one way is if these metaphors have been experienced by us. It's sweet. It's a hammer. It's it's light. Another interesting picture is that it's a mirror. James refers to it that way in James chapter 1, verse 23. The word of God shows you who you are. I think this is a question a lot of people are asking this way. Who am I? What's my real identity? God's word is a mirror. Too often we decide who we are by looking, well, at our desires. I'm labeled by the desires I have, or by our skin color, or by our ethnicity or culture, or by our education, by the titles we have at work, and on and on. We think that's our identity, that's who I really am. But the Word is our Creator's mirror. It shows us who we are in the eyes of God. It burns away those, well, I'd say those costumes which we wear, those pretenses which fool us. We really think it's real until we look into the mirror which God himself holds up. And it's a very personal mirror. It's like looking at your bathroom mirror in the morning before you've cleaned yourself up at all. It shows you exactly the way you are. So when you hear God's word, you feel like it's just for you, like it's pointed right at you. It's speaking to you personally because it's showing you your face from the perspective of your creator. Here's one last image. These are not the only ones in the Bible, but here's one last image. It's a sword that pierces and separates and analyzes and divides us. It shows us who we are inwardly. That's what Hebrews 4 verse 12 says. You can't escape its work. Martin Luther 500 years ago said, The word of God is alive. It speaks to me. It has feet. It runs after me. It has hands. It lays hold of me. Can't escape it. I wonder if you've experienced the powerful effect of God's word on your heart. See, that's one reason why Paul is sure that they belong to God, because he's seen what God is doing in their lives through his word. That was happening in Thessalonica. So with that foundation, we can look at the second vital sign, which is labor of love. And it raises this question, how do I love? With what actions, with what attitude do I love other people? Everybody says they're loving, right? You hardly ever meet somebody who says, I don't like this idea of love. But how do I love? Love can be sentimentality and nothing more. It can be warm and charitable, but it may actually hurt. We'll see this in chapter of Thessalonians. Chapter 4, we'll see that lust or just burning desire can masquerade as love. 
So how do we know that it's real love? He says here, the labor of love. True love labors. It does the hard work that God's word demands. Even if it's not easy. So love is not doing what others want you to do in order to make them happy. It's not even doing what you want to do for them. Because maybe you'd be happy to do that for them. But love is doing what God wants you to do to bless other people. And he's wise. He's good. And he loves them more than you do. So he knows how to genuinely love them. And so that's what's revealed in his word. That's the work or the labor of love. And it is hard work, isn't it? It's hard work to discipline children. Much easier to say, you know, go have ice cream and lollipops and they'll be happy and you can go watch TV or take a nap. You know, it works really well all around, but it's not loving, is it? But it's labor. So in chapter 5, we'll see that to teach people that they're more blessed to do the work that God has gifted them to do and called them to do is happier for them than to simply be fed and cared for. Later in chapter 5 or earlier in chapter 5, we'll also see that it's a labor of love to tell people to not listen to those who are giving them wrong advice or false advice, but we do it because we love them and we care about the course their life may take if they follow the wrong advice. There's a labor of love. So love is hard work. What's good and wise and pleasing to God for the person I love? That's what I want to do. I read earlier from Ephesians chapter 4 at the beginning of the service, it's hard work to do those things, to forgive, to be kind, oh, to be tender-hearted, especially if they've hurt you. But then it goes on to say, this is how God treated us. That's what real love is. So love one another in the same way. Earlier in Ephesians 4, verse 17, it says, speak the truth in love. Wow, speaking the truth can be hard, but to do it carefully and tenderly, persuasively, gently, in love, is the labor of love. And love, we'll see in Thessalonians, worries and prays over those that it loves. So, for example, look at chapter 3, verse 5. So he doesn't know what's happening with these young Christians. And so Paul says, For this reason, when I could endure it no longer, I also sent to find out about your faith, for fear that the tempter might have tempted you, and our labor would be in vain. If someone you love is wandering from the Lord, is in spiritual danger, it just weighs on you. You can't just ignore it. It keeps you up at night. You worry you pray, you labor in love. So that's the second vital sign. It's the work of faith or who do I trust? And the second one is love. How do I love? And the third one is it says steadfastness of hope, which makes us ask, well, what do I hope? When I look to the future, what is my hope? And here's what it says in verses 9 and 10. Others, they themselves, report about us, what kind of a reception we had with you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, that is Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath to come. You know, idols were not just stones and wooden works of art. 
It was far more than that. They were symbols of their hope. Just as any kind of idol, whether literal or symbolic, are really pictures of what we hope in. So the Thessalonians had many idols. They had idols to which they would dedicate their family. Idols to which they would go if they wanted children or if they wanted a mate for marriage. They would dedicate their tools to another idol and their fields. They wanted blessings from these idols. They hoped in them for health, for jobs, for every kind of material blessing. Help me, they were saying. They were praying to these idols. These idols were the future source of relief and happiness, you see. They hoped in these idols. But then something happened. You turned, Paul says, from idols to the true God. They began now to hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not an easy thing to do. It's a costly thing to do. I don't know if some of you have rejected the faith in which you were brought up by your family. I think it would be easier for our families to accept that if we did it out of anger, you know, sort of a youthful rebellion. I don't want to have anything to do with you. They would understand. That's just the way young people are, they might say. But that's not what the Thessalonians were doing. They had found, they said, the true God, the creator of heaven and earth. And so, well, it was rational. It was calm. It was loving. It was honorable. And respectfully, they turned away from everything that their family and forefathers believed and turned to the Lord Jesus Christ. Not an easy thing to do. Imagine, they didn't just say they turned to the true God, but they're calling everything that everyone else believes in in their family and what they trusted in false. They're saying, I found the true God, the creator of heaven and earth. They're repudiating the, everything their forefathers believed in. It's difficult. I remember a Japanese man who came to faith some years ago in our church. and Loved the Lord, loved his word. And when he was returning to Japan, he was troubled. Now, what do I do when I go home? Because we really honor the ancestors. And my family has these ceremonies, these celebrations where they honor the ancestors. And some of it I want to do because I also honor those who came before me. But wow, a lot of this seems to me like worship. And I, I don't know how I'm going to do that. Can I turn away from this without having my parents feeling that they're dishonored and disrespected and rejected? These are hard struggles. And this is the kind of struggle that the Thessalonians had. Remember a, a Hindu woman I was speaking with, she says, no, no, I don't, of course, believe in these rituals and these celebrations and these gods that are a part of our family celebration. But, you know, there's, it's not just that. It's the whole family gets together. It's a lot of food and it's just fun to be there. And I could never tell them that I don't believe in it because they would be hurt so much. We understand that. That's what these Thessalonians were doing, you see. They were turning from idols to the living God, willing to take scorn and ostracization from family and friends to serve the Lord. Here's how Paul puts it in chapter 2, verse 14. For you, brethren, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea, for you also endured the same sufferings at the hands of your own countrymen, even as they did from the Jews. 
Not an easy task, but they turned joyfully because now they had a personal relationship with the true God of heaven and earth. It's a transfer of hope. And what's hard is that hope waits. See what it says? Verse 10, and to wait for his son from heaven. That's a hard word, isn't it? Nobody likes to wait, but they're waiting. We'll see what it means later on when we come to a couple chapters along when they start to wonder how long they have to wait. But Christian hope endures. It endures till the coming of Jesus who will rescue us from the judgment to come because they know now, as we all know, that Christ has borne the penalty for our sins completely, absolutely. A holy, just God is not a danger to us anymore because he's already accepted us. As verse 4 said, we are already chosen by him. As it says elsewhere, we've been adopted into his family because of our faith in Christ Jesus our Lord. So Christian hope makes life steady. Steadfastness of hope. I don't know if you remember taking driver's lessons. I remember there was two of us in the car. We were going to switch back and forth. And the other guy was driving. Oh, he was so nervous. He grabbed the wheel as tight as he could. His knuckles were literally just white and, you know, sweat coming down. And he was leaning forward over the steering wheel. You know how you do. And he's looking right over the hood at the road and he's steering like this. Almost like he's steering around every pebble that he sees. And the car is going this way, this way, this way, this way. And the, and the instructor finally says, no, no, that's not how you do it. I'll tell you what, look far down and aim for that with your car. Not right over the hood, look far down. And so he finally lifted up his head and started to look down. And you know what? It was a smooth ride. That's the steadfastness of hope. We're not going by every little pebble that comes in our path. We're looking down at what God has promised will happen, and we aim for that. It keeps us steady, and it keeps us strong. We live for the hope of seeing Jesus one day. It makes our lives steadfast. Faith, hope, and love. It's a remarkable church, Thessalonica. It raises the question, how could this young church full of new believers become a beacon to the whole region. But it happened. That's verse 7 and 8. And friends, I have to tell you, that's what I believe about all of you. That's what I believe about this church. I'm convinced of that. I believe that verses 2 and 3 apply to you. I thank God, making mention of you, bearing in mind your work of faith, labor of love, and steadfastness of hope. I see it all the time. Oh yeah, there's more to do. There's more to grow for all of us. But it's there. We're like these Thessalonians. I see how you trust God's word, even when it's hard. And I see you laboring to love one another. And I see you looking and talking about and singing about the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're like the Thessalonians. Our culture is like the Thessalonians. We're not in the Bible Belt. I don't know if you've noticed that. A few years ago, I think it was in 2019, a poll was conducted about the most secular cities in our country. And by that they meant the most number of those who said, I don't want to have anything to do with any religion. And you may be surprised to know that our Pioneer Valley was number one. Something to boast about, I guess, but not for us. We're not in the Bible path. We have a lot of apathy and even hostility towards the gospel. Thessalonian setting is not so unfamiliar to us. And we have great needs just like the Thessalonians, this young church did. 
We have needs for leaders for critical ministries. We have, oh yeah, we need better organization. We need better teaching and preaching. We need more help in every aspect of life. We need to be more creative and effective in reaching the people in the valley. There's lots of lacks in our life. We're not a perfect church. We have a long way to go, but here's what I know. Verse 4, knowing, brethren, beloved by God, his choice of you. I know that. We are in God's grip. I think everything that's happened for these last decades is proof of that. Just like the Thessalonians. He's done amazing things, and the very fact that everything isn't right here is proof that God's at work because we could never have done this. We're in his grip. I'm so glad for that. And through us, as incomplete as we are, I think the good news is going to rock this valley more and more. God is going to spread his word through us. And I pray that it may be so. For God's glory and for our joy. Amen. Now, Lord, we thank you for choosing us in Christ Jesus. Sometimes we wonder why, and we know it's nothing in us. And ultimately, Lord, we're left speechless and just filled with praise and worship. Thank you for loving us, accepting us, and using us in our imperfection, using us in our weakness to do this holy work that you've called us as a church to do. But Lord Jesus, we do pray for your grace and your strength. As we prepare for communion, that's what it is, Lord. It's a reminder to us that we need you desperately. Your death and burial and resurrection not only saved us, Lord, but it equips us now, the same power, Christ, that raised you from the dead is now at work in us to do the work that only you can do through us. Use us, Lord, to bring glory to your name. In your holy name we pray it. Amen. John uh, wrote an epistle. His first letter closes with these words. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding that we may know him who is true. And that we are in in Him who is true, in His Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Reminds you of the closing of the first chapter of 1 Thessalonians. Not just my God, he's saying. It's not just the God of our tradition, of our church, of our culture. But this is the creator of heaven and earth has come to us. And He's chosen you. The creator has chosen you and made you his own. So my blessing is exactly this. May you follow the Lord Jesus Christ just as the Thessalonians did. And may you know that whatever trial you face, whatever loneliness and trouble you may face, the God of angel armies, the creator of heaven and earth has you in his grip because he's chosen you. Amen. Amen.